This is Steve Balton. Welcome back to My Turning Point, where this week we're joined by Charlie Puth. Had a lot of fun geeking out with Charlie on all things music, including Springsteen, Phil Collins, some of Charlie's most personal songs, what songs he's most excited to hear 50,000 people sing back to him, and much more. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, because it was a blast. How are you doing, dude? Where are you today? It's good. I'm in my, uh, I'm in my home in LA, and I'm talking to you. I'm excited. Nice. Now wait, you just did a show the other day. How's it been going? It's, How are the live shows going? It's it's been good. We're we're starting in New Jersey on Sunday. I was just whispered Sunday because I always seem to mess my dates up. Um, and I'm excited to kind of get going on this. Uh, uh, I call it the mini tour. The real name of it is the one uh, the one night only tour. Um, and it's basically just to get me warmed up for the real tour next year, but to really just get up and up close and personal with the fans who I haven't, I felt like I haven't seen for two years. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting time to be touring. I mean, have you missed it? I talked about this with so many people and you know, it it was a very fascinating Rorschach test for musicians. I would talk to older musicians like Ozzy who live their life on the road. And this was a direct quote. He's like, I need to get out of the fucking house. Sharon and I are on each other's tits. And then I would talk to people like David Guetta, who's like, I haven't had a summer vacation with my kids in 12 years. Wow. I didn't even think of it like that. Everybody has a, uh, a different experience. I, I think for, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm aligning myself with Ozzy's thought process. I actually played fun fact I I played a, a little bit of synthesizer on uh, his record that uh, I, I played on a song called Straight to Hell. Uh, I think that came out in the end of 2020. So that's a fun little tidbit right there. Shout out to Ozzy and Sharon, who's a good friend of mine. Um, I, I, I do want to get out and play for real life people again. The internet and TikTok is great, but there's still, no matter the technological advancement, there's still nothing like playing for a real crowd. Well, the other thing about it too, and I've talked about this with so many people, is songs come to life as soon as you do them on stage because the audience will decide what it is they like. And when you play a song, they tend to do things like the audience decides what it is that they like. So are there songs from this album that you are particularly excited to see what it is, how they respond to them? I believe track two called Charlie Be Quiet, which is a very strange, sonically very strange record for me. Um, But I'm excited to see how that translates in a live uh, scheme. And I, I'll also Loser, track seven, I'm excited to see what that. It's more of an expected kind of sound from me, but I'm excited to see what that sounds like, how, I, how, how my voice holds up. <laughs> well, it's interesting for you. Have there been songs as well then that you've missed playing live? I've missed playing See You Again live because I wrote that record for... My friend, who is no longer here, but I um, feel like that song would be like the last message I would send to him. Like, I'll, I'll tell you all about what happened, what you missed while well, I admit what you missed here on Earth. Um, and that song has it's been seven years since that song came out. And it's still there, there's still people who are discovering it, especially this influx of new fans that I've uh, 
gotten from TikTok. It's really fun to just see people react to that song. I live for people's reactions. Well, it's funny that you say that because, um, you know, I just did a book that's coming out where I talk with all these amazing artists, everyone from Brian Wilson and Neil Diamond to Carly Simon and, you know, about how songs evolve over time and what makes, you know, an anthem and how these songs evolve for you. Has it been fascinating to see how it is a song evolves? And like you say, you bring in a new influx of people. And it's like I was talking to Veridine White from Earth, Wind and Fire. We were talking about September. Right. And, you know, that's a song recorded in the late 70s. Then it becomes an anthem in the 90s for reasons totally out of your control. Then in the 2000s, they re-recorded with Justin Timberlake and Anna Kendrick for Trolls. And now all of a sudden, it's like every five-year-old in the world's favorite song. Yeah. And so, you know, that's what I was getting at with songs taking on lives. They have, you have no control over a song. Once it goes into the world, it is not yours at all. So have there been ones that you've really enjoyed seeing that response? Wow. You are very, you, the way you speak is very, it's very fun to, and refreshing to have someone. You're very good at what you do, clearly. Um, Thank you. I, um, and by the way, fun fact about September, it doesn't stay at the same tempo. It starts off at a slightly slower tempo because they didn't, Verdine told me this, even they didn't play to click. So it got progressively faster as the song went on, which is pretty cool fact. And it doesn't really happen. Uh, too often with newer music as everything is pretty much on the grid. Um, I, I'll, I'll never be uh, more fascinated with um, One Call Away and how it's evolved into the quote-unquote stadium anthem that it's become. Sorry, that's the Gardener. Of course, they started right when we started. Perfect timing. It's um, all good. Uh, but I think that's the, the the involvement in that song and how that song has progressed in my career is mostly due to the uh can you help him um i i, I think uh sorry i lost my train of thought just now um, you were saying about one call away and how it sort of evolved oh right i think that's in part because of how i've gotten I, i've become a better performer live and the arrangement uh, has changed over the years as well. It's become uh, it, originally when I wrote it, it was very simple and I wasn't very good um, at singing it. And now I've become downright cocky with it because the audience just screams every word along with me. And I, I kind of approach it like if Phil Collins were playing it to a stadium, I tried, I, I put the, the chorus on the piano, I make it sound very wide. It's kind of ambiguous where it doesn't sound too 80s, but it's kind of mixed with today's feeling a little bit it's a so for that musically it's evolved and it's evolved on stage as well so i'm, I'm very surprised at that well it's an interesting thing because in this book two of the songs are hollow notes sarah smile yeah. and graham nash uh, our house and i talked with both of them about these and it's like there's something about the more intimate a picture you paint the more people feel invited in and i think that the more honest you are in a song and so for you with a song like one call away which is written for a friend of mm -hmm. course what makes a great song is the universality of it is that someone can hear it that you wrote for your friend and think of their friend as well Ab absolutely i mean my my whole thing when i'm making a song the most important thing for me is for one simple sentence to spawn off 400 different thoughts for the listener. Um, people are always like people on, uh, especially young kids on TikTok are always like you went to music school and you've learned jazz piano and you're classically trained. Why do you make such 
simple pop music? And the answer is how, how am I how am I going to cast such a wide net by making avant garde uh, music that not everybody can grab onto? I'll, I'll I'll make it a little interesting for my own interest, but it's really pop, popular music is about singing songs with familiarity and them and filling in the blank for people who might not be as musically experienced, making them feel like they wrote the song with me. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that like one of the hardest things to do is simple songwriting. And I always look at a song like John Lennon in my life that feels like the simplest song in the world, but mm. no one could have written it, but John Lennon. And yeah. it's such an advanced, profound song. It's funny for you when you think of those artists who were really good at bringing you in, in writing songs that are universal, but obviously are so gifted musically. And of course, Joni, for example, is, I mean, look, I mean, <laughs> you know, as musically gifted as anyone in the world, but you know, a song like a case of you mm -hmm. is supposed to be universal. everywhere. So who are those artists who really speak to you or those songs where you sort of appreciated that? Cause I think as you get older as well, mm -hmm. you know, you appreciate simplicity more and more. If it's what, what's most fascinating to me are the songs that, appear to be simple, but when you really, if you choose to musically dissect them are actually some of the most complicated pieces of music, like you mentioned in my life, A major, A major, E, mi e major, F sharp minor, A7, D major, D minor, A, uh, a major, E, it's, it, it's, it sounds, it's almost like Mozart where he put, he was uh, writing uh, what would be adapting to the twinkle, twinkle little star. It's actually some of the hardest uh, piano music to perform because if you make a mistake, there's so much uh, uh, left up to interpretation and it's so open and just wide open that it's super noticeable if you make a mistake. Um, if you, uh, Groovy Kind of Love by Phil Collins, which is also classically uh, driven, uh, written by Carol Bersager, it's the same type of thing too, but the simplistic melody is going to make it anthemic. Bruce, Spring I was talking about this on Howard Stern yesterday. Bruce Springsteen does that a lot in his music, but it's actually, there's a lot of layers that you don't notice in Hungry Heart and in Jungle Land. It just sounds like a piano part in C major, but there's guitar uh, ambiance in the background. You cleverly use in the production to give it that atmospheric feel. Like there's a lot of things that the common listener isn't going to take notice of, but maybe they're not supposed to unless they want to. All right, well, Springsteen, by the way, my number one artist of all time. So what's the favorite Springsteen song? I, I'd say Jungle Land. And uh, it's a tie between Jungle Land and Racing in the Street for me. Oh, man. All right. We're going to be friends forever now, dude. Racing in the Street is one of my favorite of all time. And it's funny because it's not an obvious one that everyone says. But yeah, that one is so like... Exactly. There's a level of it too, but it's fine. I go back to, are you a fan of Nick Drake at all? Or do you know his music at all? Oh, I don't. So Wait. Nick Drake was a, a 70s artist, only put out three albums, British artist, became this like sort of huge influence on alternative music. Sadly passed away at like 26 years old. Okay. But I got to interview his producer, Joe Boyd. Check it out because it's very interesting because it's sim it feels like very simple acoustic stuff. But then you listen to it and Joe Boyd was telling me that it's impossible to play on guitar because Nick had these crazy long fingers. And he was like the only one who could do it. 
but you hear it and it feels like something. And again, that's part of what we're talking about is, you know, it's like when you look at, I appreciate this in any art form. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a writer, whether it's a filmmaker, an athlete, Roger Federer, who just retired, right? When someone is great at what they do, they make it look easy. But of mm -hmm. course we know it's never easy. They yeah. just make it look easy. Yes, that, it's, it, that is what you said it perfectly. Spoken like a true writer that you are. It's not just musicians. It's It could be anybody. Like there's... Um, uh, uh, my, my hair, the guy who cuts my hair, I'm like, how do you, I, it's easy to pick up scissors and like cut a piece of hair, but like the way that you do it, like you make my head look more round. I have a big head and you make it look small. I don't know how, you, I, I don't know. I, I, so I appreciate everybody for their talents and abilities. Nick Drake, he died when he was 26. I've never heard of him before. That's he only put out three albums and then had went through a resurgence in the late 90s. He had a song, Pink Boon, in a Volkswagen commercial. But like everyone from R.E.M. and Nirvana to, you know, um, Moby, all these were influenced by him because he had all these themes of alienation. Check it out, you know, um, and I'll be curious to hear what you think of it. Because like I say, it's very, it comes across as very simple. But again, I was lucky enough to interview his producer, Joe Boyd, who had also worked with R.E.M. and all these people. And we talked about that fact. I think some of the most interesting you, you bring up his long fingers. And again, I know nothing about him, but I think some of the most, and there were a lot of people obviously influenced by him. I'm sure there were people who tried to play the guitar, like he played the guitar and messed up and it didn't come out quite as right, but some great songs, maybe by Nirvana even came about from that. Maybe some subconscious influence. I mean, I think like Bruce was telling me just before we spoke, because I was telling him, that I was, you know, giving him props and, and gassing him up on the Stern show. He told me that he didn't even write um, most of Greetings from Asbury Park on guitar. Guitar is his instrument, but he wrote it all on piano. Like, that's him playing the piano, for the, like the, is, is what he told me. I found that to be astounding. So you never know how where a song is going to uh, come from. I, write, I wrote all of these songs on this album of mine from... Uh, uh, different instruments and samples and pitching them up and down a bit unusual interesting well i was talking about this with someone yesterday so when you go back to this record wait we, we, i can't ignore this for a second though because it's funny i literally have interviewed i fucking interviewed james brown wow. right i've never met bruce so i'm so jealous of you at this point you know you know what i think he's because he had never been on Stern Show either. I know he's appearing next week. I think he's becoming more open to, uh, if I don't want to speak for him, but I think he's becoming more open to uh, doing interviews. So I feel like you, you, you may. He's one of the most interesting people I've ever gotten to speak to. Wait, how long ago did you meet him for the first time? How did you guys meet? And I swear we'll come on to the record in one second, but as a fan, I got to ask now. Uh, we met over, uh, we did this um, New Jersey pandemic relief fund that the governor had put on. Uh, all done on Zoom, of course, at, you know, May, April, May 2020, um, at the very beginning of the pandemic. And uh, I met him through the Internet. I'll never forget getting the uh, the cell phone call from the 732 area code saying, Charlie, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, I got to interview Tom Waits only once. Wow. Uh, he picks up. I pick up the phone. He goes, Steve, Tom, it's a moment you never forget. You, I get chills just thinking about it, but I'm fine talking about Bruce because Bruce was hugely influential in the creation of this album because the way that he commands 50,000 people 
I remember seeing him at Giant Stadium, but the old one before they tore it down in 2007. And he played a, a newer song of his at the time called Wrecking Ball. And the way they love that song, fucking love that song. And he was able to make 50,000 people who most I'd say 80 percent of that crowd. If I'm you know, I don't want to be biased, but I'm pretty sure that not all of them were trained musicians. They're there for a good time. and They're big fans of Bruce. No disrespect to them. But and they're most likely not going to sing on key when they're singing by themselves. But when you put 50,000 people who sing off key together or kind of on key and it's mixed, it's a mixed bag, you get this beautiful chorus backing Bruce's voice up. It's just that that's why I feel like so many of his fans feel like they're on stage with him. They feel so connected with him because it's music that is not only approachable, uh, thematically, but musically for everybody as well. So that's how I approached making my album in a more pop mu music sense. I'm 30 years old and this is my third album, but I want those anthemic songs that Bruce sings at his shows. I want those at my shows as well. All right. So what's the one song that you feel like is most likely to have 50,000 people singing back to it? Hold, well, even if it's not a hit record, maybe it's like a record that garners a cult following. There's this song called Tears on My Piano. It's track 10. And the reason why I attribute Bruce to making uh, his writing style to how I wrote that song is because there's a melody in the piano that mirrors the main melody of the chorus. So you, the, the audience of who I perform that to, they can sing along to the the piano melody and they can sing along to the actual chorus melody of what those are two in the same. Like you, you hear Clarence Clemens playing the saxophone, uh, even like the Christmas song. I know he didn't write that song, but the audience, when I saw them perform that they sung, they sung along with Clarence's saxophone solo they just went da 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 like i want my audience to sing along with uh instruments that don't even have lyrics attached to them so that is that song i was definitely taking a bruce approach when i wrote that song yeah it's interesting though too it's funny you say you wrote all these songs on different um instruments look man i'm a big believer in good writing is subconscious so when you go back and listen to charlie are there things on there that really surprise you things that you look at it now and you're like you know, because Bruce, of course, has talked about that in shows, like, you know, how songs evolve over the years. And it's funny because I got to interview Ani DeFranco, who I freaking love, right? And I asked her about a record and I was like, well, what does this record mean to you? She's like, I don't fucking know. Ask me in 20 years, you know, because I think a lot of times for artists, it takes a minute to figure out. So for Charlie, are there songs on there that now surprise you? I like that answer, by Ani. Ask me in 20 years. Um, this, I think the song... I'm going through the playlist right now. The song that, you know what? I'm a piano player and I, there, there's very little piano on this record. It's all synths. It's all guitars. It's all hybrid guitars. You really can't identify if it's in a bass range or a guitar range. I'm surprised that I chose, and I guess subconsciously while making the record to Basically, two songs have piano as the focal instrument, the backbone of, uh, of the record. And my whole shtick, I have 30 pianos in that room over there. My whole thing is playing piano. And on tour, I have pianos. But 
I'm not really using them all that much. It's really synths. So that's always surprising to me. I wonder if in 30 years or 20 years, I'll be approaching these uh, songs in the same way. Well, I mean, look, it's so interesting. And it's funny because that you, you know, this record, you diversify on so many different things. And yet it's called Charlie, which, you know, to me sort of is indicative of the fact. Do you feel like this record is maybe in ways more like you than anything else? It's funny. It's like, because I think as you get older, you come more in tune with your voice. You become more comfortable. Everybody gets more comfortable with who they are as they get older. Everybody does get more comfortable with who they are as they get older. And I certainly, that that, uh, that was jump-started in the pandemic for me. I, I felt like I was more of an immature person uh, when I was 29, which was a year ago. Um, and I really do believe that the, 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 the creation of this album propelled me into being a more mature, evolved version of myself. And I realized that making music and uh, putting your feelings into art kind of propels you to the next level of you. It's very healing in a way. Well, and obviously it came about during such an interesting time. And I mean, it's, you know, the pandemic. And then, of course, on a global level, we're, you know, so fucked as a humanity at this point. So there's that. It's interesting for you. Are there things that comes back to the question I asked about being sort of surprised by? But it's funny. Do you feel like, because one of the things I talked about with so many artists was also having a freedom. Because typically you're working on an album tour hamster cycle, you know. And now all of a sudden you don't have that thing because you can't tour for two years. So do you feel like it allowed you to go deeper as a writer and without the deadlines to feel like, okay, I have the chance to evolve. Everything you said, if I could just copy and paste it and (laughs) make it sound like I said it, I said everything you just said. And yes, it did allow me to go deeper into my songwriting and not um, really worry about deadlines. I could really, you know, in a classic time off, artists taking time off kind of way. I, I, I learned a lot about myself by talking to myself. Obviously I couldn't surround myself with 15 different songwriters in one room um, for logistical reasons. Um, and I uh, came to terms with a lot of things that I never wanted to put into music that I thought was overly vulnerable. It doesn't make me look like the cool guy. It's not cool to show your feelings. Well, I was very, very wrong about that. And the number one rule, I think Carol King said one time, the number one rule in songwriting is to tell the truth. And there were times where I was putting up a little bit, just a tiny bit of a front and making myself seem a lot cooler than I actually am. Now I'm perceived as cool and I'm just acting myself and owning myself well but i think again that also it's obviously the pandemic speeds that up but again that's something that comes with age and you hit 30 and you start to realize like who gives a shit what other people think so do you also find though that people are responding to it more so because i think the more honest you are and this goes back to what i was saying about hollow notes and graham nash the more honest you are the more people identify with it it's i've i can't walk anywhere on the street anymore and people seem to care um, about what's going on in my life, which was never the case before. It, when I started, it was really about just getting the radio single out, just getting the catchy song out. Now people care about my my project. That so in, in in that respect, I feel like a new artist. It's very it's a very exciting time for me right now. All right. Well, we'll wrap up in a minute. But for you, when you think of great vulnerable songwriting, 
couple of examples of, of, you know, when you think about artists who can really put themselves out there. And of course, I mentioned some artists earlier. There are some great artists who can do that in a way, too, that's very populist. I think of Adele, for example, a song like Someone Like You. And it's so funny because did an AOL session with her right when the record was coming out. And she's like, wow, I'm never going to sing this song live because it's too difficult. Then of course it becomes the biggest fucking song in the world. And she does it a thousand times. I'm like, you're so full of shit, but you know, that's a perfect example of a song that can be so vulnerable and also speak to millions of people. And be simple and complex at the same time. That's a hard song to sing. And that's a hard song to that. That's a hard piano part to keep time in um that is a the the fun fact the guy who wrote that song with her also wrote closing time yeah dan wilson dan wilson very very talented fellow um i think and any any artist that evolves and is the reason that they evolved is someone that i want to be inspired by someone like adele who no, I, I don't think the only thing that sounds similar on all her albums is her voice. She always knows where to lead next, which is very inspiring for me to hear. Bruce does it too. The rising sounds nothing like greetings from Asbury park rising about a really, obviously a very uh, terrible time uh, in New York city and him capturing that feeling and putting music notes to, uh, to it and really touching a lot of people as a result. Very inspiring as well. Well, yeah, I mean, there's nothing that impresses me more personally as someone who's been around somebody than longevity. That, mm-hmm. that is like, it's funny. I've interviewed everyone in the world. The only times I ever get nervous, first time I interviewed B.B. King, I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Wow. I mean, I'd be nervous too. That's crazy. Yeah, well, and it's funny for me. And by the way, like these, I'm very fortunate to talk to so many interesting people. Not to sound like an asshole name dropping all the time, but I talk to people who are way more interesting than me and they have interesting things to say. But it's funny with that. Like, again, I was I that's the only time I could think of being scared shitless, because, again, you're talking about, you know, someone who'd done this. I was like 25 when I did it and he was 71. And I was like, I felt so stupid asking him questions. Like, what am I going to say that he hasn't heard a million times? Well, that was that was me talking to Howard Stern yesterday. I was like, I can't believe I'm on your show like you. Are, you have talked to everybody, and how did I get so lucky to be um, on your show? But there's always, the, I think, the, I think the really great people that stick around, no matter what you do, music, radio, anything, the the people that stick around for a long time are the, are, are the ones who have a constant yearn to learn and don't think that they know everything. Max Martin, good example. Still, he's going to be making hit records because that's what he likes to do for pop musicians for the rest of his life because he surrounds himself with the newest, latest, and greatest beat makers, songwriters. He takes note of who is, is killing it and he applies what he does and has always done. Cool. All right, wait, now I got to ask you and then we'll wrap up on this. Two questions. One, favorite anthem of all time. Favorite anthem of all time. I love the, uh, mm, the Oh, I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston. Love it. Interesting. Okay. Why that one? Because it's sung by somebody who can outsing, could outsing anybody. I don't, I, I, I believe that there will just be nobody like her ever again. And, uh, it's, it's a hard song to sing, but somehow people learn how to sing it. They just, they, and they sing it well, even though it's really, it's an F sharp major. It's one of the, it's the most sharps in any key ridiculously hard to sing but it sounds beautiful when people sing it 
All right. And then last question, what do you want people to take from Charlie when they hear this as a full album? And maybe you can't answer that for 20 years, but I don't know. Um, I want people rather than to praise me for being a uh, musician in the spotlight and thinking, Oh, I'll never be in his position. He's this famous singer. I was hoping that I could have someone to look up to 11 years ago when I was making videos on YouTube and I hope that they can listen to this album. Anybody who's making music or doing anything, I hope that they can listen to this album and know that they can live their life and put art up against it and make something really interesting that people want to hear. Cool. I think that's a great wrap up. Now, what do you want to add? I didn't ask you about favorite interview in a very, very long time. I really like the way you asked those questions. Well, given the fact that you just did Stern yesterday and he's fucking genius. And I'll tell you, Ben, there's not a lot of interviewers I like, mm -hmm. you know, because I, they ask some dumb questions, but he, he's a genius. So I he, take that as a huge compliment, given the fact that you just did it yesterday. So, well, yeah, it's funny. I, I enjoy I can geek out on music with anyone anytime. I always enjoy just geeking out. And obviously, if you can, you know, name check, you know, racing in the street. That is one of my favorite songs of all time. Well, I'll ne the reason why that song is special to me is because it's it's a little sad, but um, I was um, there for the Boston bombing at the marathon, and I remember my dad picked me up because I was going to Berkeley at the time, and I didn't understand the severity of the situation because you know these weren't as advanced as they are now. Um, so we had Twitter and that's it. And it wasn't live updating. So I was in New Jersey and I was like, you know what? I got to go back to my city and I got to go back to Boston. And it was the worst mistake of my life because that's when, um, if you saw the movie with Mark Wahlberg, that's when the police were chasing the guys and they unfortunately killed the, um, uh, the cop at MIT. And I was right there when the police chase was happening and racing in the street came on by Bruce Springsteen. And it was this moment of, wow, this is a horrible situation, but this song is so beautiful. It's beautiful and horrible mixed at the same time. It's haunting. And it just, uh, I, I always took note of it. I didn't really know what to do with that information. And I still don't know what to do with that information or why that happened when it happened. But I always found it very profound. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's funny. I think for every great song, you can associate a memory with it. And then it kind of becomes like, you know, just this part of your sort of DNA. Yeah, it's interesting. But I do hope we get to speak again soon. Oh, dude, anytime. This was a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Hey, this is Steve Walton. Thanks so much for listening to My Turning Point with special guest Charlie Puth. Check out his new album, Charlie, and Charlie is on tour this summer. Thanks. Long day without you, my friend. And I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. I see you again. We've come a long way, yeah, a long way. from where we began. You know we started. Oh, I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. I tell you. When I see you again. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.